See, the body of Christ was designed to be a society of interpersonal relationships, a company of difference, a fellowship of difference, where each individual has a gift, a talent, and God designed us to support each other, to encourage each other, to love one another, to build up one another in the faith under the guidance and rule of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the get-go in the book of Genesis, it says, it's not good for man to be alone. And when God created Eve, he did not create a clone. He made someone different to complement Adam, a suitable helper. We are not only created for relationships, but we are better off because of the relationships, because we are better together. Historians have communicated to us that before the Renaissance period, between the 14th and 16th century, the Western men rarely saw themselves as individuals. We drew our identities from our identity in groups, family, tribes, church, guilds, unions, in other words. It was the Canadian Marshal McClellan who said, it took the advantage of print to tear us from our tribes and put the dream of isolation in our brains and the rise of individualism that we think we can survive without the help of other human beings. What he meant by that was that we began to value our mobility, our convenience, our privacy as the most of all treasures. That's where we put our stock in. In other words, we became basically loners putting our personal needs above everyone else. And that is the disease that's in the Western society. It's true even in our day when most of us in our world today would rather curl up with their smartphones instead of a human being. Or stay and watch a screen all day instead of having face-to-face -face contact with another human being. There is a good book out by Andy Crouch called The Tech Wise Family about putting technology in its proper place before it begins to create islands of people that are disconnected, which I believe has already happened. As a result, we value tech over people. Yet scripture commands us to leave, lead and live a communal life that we are better together. We spent a few months in the evening services on the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about communal living and living with each other underneath the Lordship of the Father. And Scott McKnight says some wise words concerning the Sermon on the Mount in his commentary. We live in a world of evaluations, assessments, measurements, but Jesus turns his gaze deeper because he knows what is measurable can be faked, hello? If all we are looking at, the numbers of a weekly gathering, we are looking to things that we can manipulate and we can fake to make us look better than the person down the street. God did not create us to merely hang out because there's a difference between hanging out and truly being together in the body of Christ, under, in the person of Jesus. We are in Christ, to use some Pauline terms, which means union not only with the Godhead, but with each other. We don't come to church merely, merely to hang out, to be together, 
We come because we want to hear the hush of the holy wind of God arriving upon us, shaping us, instructing us, guiding us, inspiring us so that we may go out and make this world of isolated individuals a better place to, to live and a better place to carry out the plan of God so that we, O oh Lord, can, can create a place where we are better together. See, we are not merely hanging out on Sunday morning together. There's a principle and a purpose here. The principle is the presence of God who arrives. He arrives. See, the difference between God's relationship with Israel and God's relationship with Abraham and Noah and Adam and Eve was that God began to create a nation in Moses' day, a people that became a country, a people that God arrived and saved them and led them out of Egypt, and he carried them on eagles' wings. He's the God of arrival. And then he arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And the people that belonged to him, to his tribe, rejected him. He came to be their leader. And they said, we don't want you. And he ended up on a cross. God's presence is essential. The principle and the purpose is that the mission of God comes before our individual needs. That's clear in the gospel. So why has the church throughout the ages failed to test testify to this truth? We are better together. We are better together. Look at the Protestant church, which means protest against something, and the many countless thousands and maybe tens of thousands of divisions that occur because we put our dream of what the church is before God's dream. I love this passage from Ecclesiastic. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor because they are better together. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help them. But people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble because there's no one to help them. And all us married couples knows this is true. On a cold night, two under the same blanket can gain warmth from each other. And on those cold nights, we say amen to that. But how could one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, the wise man says, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Two are better than one, and three is out of sight. It's a wow. Solomon, in his wisdom, is giving us some fighting words, especially for we in the 21st century that live in a dog-eat-dog culture, not only in the world, but a dog-eat-dog culture in the church, sadly to say, where it shouldn't exist. And God, throughout his word, says that we survive better Together, because together we have a greater input than doing it all alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis and hung by the gallows because of what he believed. He said these words, and before I get to those words, here are these words that come before that. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. 
And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each has itself, by itself has profound pearls and pitfalls. One wants fellowship without solitude, plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the absence of vanity, self-inflactuation, and despair. And then he said, the person who dreams or the person who loves their dream of community will destroy the community. You get what he's saying there? But the one person who loves those around them, even their enemies, I would add, will create community. The one whose concept of what the church should be and what the church should do and what the church should say and what the church should go, he destroys the body of Christ because the only thing that matters to him is what his dream of the body of Christ is. But for the one that can love even the ones who offend them and the ones that ridicule them and the ones that persecute them, they can create the community of the kingdom of God. You follow me? See, God designed us as individuals and as a church to rely on relationships with each other so that we can reach our full potential. Not just take a crack at community, but reach the full potential that God wants us to achieve. Because we are better, I can't hear you, we are better together, together. The Salem feature of life together is not that we all agree on how we interpret the Word of God. It's not upon how we agree to make doctrines of what we interpret the Word of God to be. To be better together, we need the unity of love before the unity of how we formulate doctrines. You understand that? Because man has been arguing for a long time of what the Word of God says. And one theologian wisely said that even though the unity of faith might become an impossibility, the unity of love is a possibility. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. Amen. I can disagree with you about how we interpret the word of God, but I am not going to disagree with you about how we share the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's a different thing altogether. See, the early church was a church in which they loved each other. But if, if you read the New Testament as it is, you know they didn't agree on, on all the interpretations the same way. But one thing they did agree on, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus saved them, that the cross is powerful, that God gave us a kingdom of power, not a kingdom of talk. And all we got today is a kingdom of talk, 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 talk. I'm looking for power, the power that is found in unity, the power that is found when we are better together. The sad thing is that if our community of our dream involves our ethnic groups, people who look like us, people that think like us, people that have the same conviction of us, it becomes a place where we don't welcome anyone inside and we close the door on the ones that God wants to put through those doors. You follow me? We read Psalm 133 before. Here's verse 1 and 3 again. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Don't put the burden on the people that are outside the fold. God's speaking to us. 
Don't see how politicians that don't have a relationship with Jesus, how they live, or the decisions that they make, they have to answer for that themselves. But we that are God's people, blessed, good, when we live and dwell in the unity of love. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. That's not a duration of life. It's not a longevity of life. It's a quality of life that is available right now because the eternal one is amongst us. The body of Christ gets to experience this life, not at the end of when I breathe my last breath on this earth, but when the Holy Spirit breathed his spirit in my life, I experienced eternal life. Uh, they don't get it, Lord. They don't get it. Here's what we're going to look at. Next week, Pastor Betty will be dealing with what's missing from Jesus' mission. Then we're going to look together with God. It's better together as a family. It's better together as a team. It's better together as a church. And today, the big idea is we are better together. And some of you are saying, fat chance, that's going to happen. Oh, you of little faith. I'm not asking what you can do in your strength. I'm asking you, what would you let God do with your life? Would you crucify your dream of community for the sake of God, creating his community amongst us so that we may be better together? See, changing the world is more than any one of us can do alone. But it's not more than all of us together can do together. The Bible is crystal clear. Jesus' message tells us that when we unify, collaborate, and come together as believers, he is present. He is present. The arrival of God amongst his people that are together every time they assemble is evident in the Feast of Pentecost when they waited and they waited and they waited, and then the arrival of the rushing wind and the tongues of fire came upon the people, not because they were hanging out, not because they were gathered in one place, because they were together knit in their hearts with each other in love. You know, the sad thing about individualism and loneliness, it can lead to death. King Frederick II is from the 13th century. He was the king of Germany besides other emperor, emperor, empires at that time as well. But he created a diabolical experiment. There's no other way to explain it. To discover what language children will speak growing up naturally without the aid of instructors and teachers. And he was sure, because he was the German king, that the first language that these children and infants will speak will be German. To him, that seemed quite obvious. And it just needed to be proven, so he conducted this diabolical experiment. He took babies from their mothers when they were newly born. And he placed them in the care of some nurses who were forbidden to speak in their presence. So take care of the children, but don't talk to the children. And then he imposed a second equally cruel rule. The nurses were not even allowed to touch the infants, so don't speak to children or infants and don't touch them. Leave them alone. Don't get involved emotionally. Don't have any contact with them. Just leave them there. 
And due to the horrific response, Frederick had to cut his experiment short. The tragedy reveals something very significant regarding human nature. As you may have guessed, the babies never spoke any language at all. Looking for someone to speak German or English or Italian or French first, it won't work unless there's somebody to teach them. We need each other because we're better together. They all died. They all died. But there was an Italian historian, Salambeni the Adam, in 1248, who made observation of what Frederick II tried to accomplish. And he said that the children and the infants could not live without petting, in other words, without touching, without cuddling, without speaking, without singing to them, without care, care. The babies literally died from a lack of human touch and being left alone. That's what modern science calls a failure to thrive. So in other words, it's a non-flourishing. It's rather floundering rather than flourishing society. We humans flourish. We grow when we're in the presence of other people who love to us, who speak truth into us, who speak God's power into us, who speaks life into us. But when we try to do it alone and we just withdraw from the body of Christ, we begin to die. Die in the Spirit of God. And you would think that after this experience, experiment that the humanity would have learned its lesson. But in 1990, while we were living in, in Europe, we've seen firsthand clips, video clips, and pictures of the tragedy of Romania's orphans. And our church got involved right from the get-go when the communist wall began to fall. It was revealed to the world through the news channels and and when they went to visit these Romanian orphanages, there was no bedtime stories. There was no hugs. There was no reassurance from a mom or dad. And there was no laughter of joy of a biological mom and dad or loving family. And the orphans remained silent. And they even stopped crying because no one was paying attention to them. It was a drab dormitory, small children, old enough to walk and take the grips of the rails. And you, I can see it in my mind, the pictures and the video clips. And some of you probably have seen it too, if you can remember to that time. Here they were in the cribs and like that, full of feces excrement. In other words, poo. Wiping their face with it because no one will go and give them the human touch and speak to them and cuddle them and tell them they are worth something. Here they were there, left alone. They couldn't even walk or stand up, rolling back and forth. They had a playroom, they said, filled with toys, a paradise of imagination exercise donated by other countries. But they didn't let them use it. They locked it up in a storeroom somewhere. And all the caretakers, the nurses, the women that were in charge in white uniforms, all they would do was stand outside the rooms and chat and have cigarettes where these young orphans were self-destructing because of the lack of human touch, the lack of human dialogue, the lack of human care that would see them as reflectors of God's images instead of a nuisance. You think we would learn seven centuries after King Frederick II? And there's stories around our world that says this is still going on. 
still going on. Dr. Dean Ornish presented studies that affirm anything that promotes feelings of love and intimacy is going to produce healing. Hello? Anything that promotes intimacy and love produces healing. Then he says, anything that promotes isolation, separation, loneliness, loss, hostility, anger, cynicism, depression, alienation, and related feelings often leads to suffering, disease, and premature death. Do you know that people die because they're lonely? Because they're lonely. You can be in here right this morning and hanging out, but maybe you're lonely. And you're one of those people that deep in your heart you're crying out for that human touch, that human understanding. And you need us to help you as much as we need you to help us to live the life. Human beings are literally engineered for loving relationships. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> it's a, as if our DNA contains the message, we are better. Which leads us to this. What's killing the church? What's killing the church? If it's true that a lack of being together and understanding each other can physically kill a human body, could it be the same for the church? That a lack of being together could kill the body of Christ? If isolation and loneliness could lead to suffering and premature death in a human body, could separation and alienation also lead to sickness and fatality in the body of Christ? And while we're asking good questions, if the church is made out of people who thrive in community and die on our own, does it make sense that the body of Christ will flourish when we come together, truly come together, not just to hang out, or we would perish if we abandon one another? If it's true that a lack of being together can physically kill a human body, could the same be true for the church? I think so. I think that's what we're seeing in our day, that we can survive without each other, that I can read my Bible at home, I can pray at home, I can stay away from the gatherings of together, not just hanging out, and fulfill God's purpose. See, God's people were called to come together. They're called to acknowledge Jesus as Lord together. They're told to break bread together. They're told to open the word of God together. They're called to worship in spirit and truth together, together, together. Father, make us one so that the world may know that you sent your son. That's done together. And they will all know that you are my disciples for the love you have for one another. And you can only see that love exhibited when we live the life that is better together. Some of our churches have a search and destroy the adversary relationship. Follow me? They're just searching and they're looking and saying, we've got to break that relationship with that person off or that couple off. And, and they're just searching to see where they can disrupt and divide the body of Christ. But I think we need the other type of, of, of search committee, the one that's going to support and encourage and affirm relationships, not destroy them. Hello? Am I speaking to someone? You know, there's been a lot of talk about some people leaving the church. That I, I just feel that the danger of that type of talk is always to look at what we've done wrong. I'd like to tell you that, that you should be encouraged because you're here. They're not. They made a decision to leave. You didn't. 
They didn't think about how you feel. And as far as I know, I've never heard from them personally. They're wise. But we shouldn't try to destroy ourselves for people who made their own conscious decision to leave. But we should look to build our life better together for what God has left us to do. And we still love them. And we still pray for them. We still care for them. And they're still invited into our gatherings whenever they want to. That's, 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 that's not a problem. But we cannot look at ourselves to examine what we do when we're not the ones who left. They did. Hello? Anybody hear me? And we shouldn't keep talking about it. We should work on building our lives better together and inviting the outsiders to become insiders and open the doors for other people that are looking for a relationship with Christ. Chuck Swindle hits it right on the mark. One plus one equals survival. I need you, you need me if we're going to survive. You might not like it, but we do need each other to survive. Read the stories of Elijah and Elisha, Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan. They needed each other. That's just to name a few. They needed each other to survive. None of them were lone rangers, but even lone ranger had Tonto, right? We know that. They helped each other survive. I love what Eugene Peterson says, God never makes private secret salvation deal with people. There is no Christian that is an only child. Hello? Remember Elijah had the problem, I'm the only prophet here, Lord. And what did God say? There's 500 more prophets down the road that are praying up a storm. Paul said the same thing in the book of Acts, I'm the only one here, and God reminds him, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not alone. You're not alone. That's the essence of the gospel truth. You are not alone. See, we need to move towards the great cooperation of unity of love for the sake of the gospel. See, the mission of Jesus crumbles when the people of God no longer work together. We are good at hanging out, but actual mission and, and evangelism, not so much. Right? There's an African proverb that, so, that goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. And some of you are going fast and you're alone. You think you have no need for the body of Christ. But if you want to go far, the African proverb says, go together. Because a shared joy is double joy, said the Swedish proverb. But a shared sorrow is half the sorrow when we live life better together. See, our Western world, since the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period, always asks, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? I get nothing out of it. And then you create a people in the body of Christ that hop from one church to another church because they're looking to satisfy their needs and not looking to contribute to the body of Christ the bigger picture. That's what Western people do. But you know what the rest of the world says? What's in it for us, not me? How does this make this church a better church? How does my dream of community make us better together, not makes my life easier? Back to Psalm 133. Verses 1 and 3, what we read. 
Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. And the last verse, there the Lord commands the blessing life forevermore. It's a family of God. It's, it's called the Song of Ascent. It's a song that they sing when they made their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate. It starts at Psalm 120-something and, and, and then finishes after a few psalms after this. And it's mostly Judean Jews, that's why they're called Jews, because they're from Judah, that are singing it as they make their way to Jerusalem where the temple is, because God's kingdom is divided, you see. It's the division of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And yet these people are singing on their way to celebrate at the temple. Let's celebrate life's achievements. They're singing this song that God's desire is the reunification of the people of Israel, the north and the south, that they will get together because to be a witness for God's light, it is better together. And peasant, the word peasant reveals something that's attractive, something that's desirable. Fraternal unity is, is attainable and attractive. It's prized, it's valued, it's pursued by the people of God. They're praying, oh God. Would you reunite us as your intended desire when you took Moses out of Egypt and led him with Joshua to the promised land? The land that you gave us, Lord. The land that you promised us. It's no wonder that Jesus prays the same prayer that we sang about earlier on. Father, make us one. Not that we all agree on the same doctrine or what color the carpet should be or what color the walls, but can we be united in the love of Christ Jesus who sacrificed his life for our sake? This has been God's vision for humanity from the beginning, that we are better together, that the sum of the parts together, when put together, creates a better witness than us split as Adams again and again and again and again. Christ has been reunifying the church since he, his death. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks about that, that the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles has been dismantled. Aren't you glad? I am. No us and them no more, but we, us singular, one people, the new Israel, even when God created Adam and Eve, he created a community. <laughs> and then when Jesus came and became flesh and lived in this world, he lived in community with his 12 disciples and the entourage of women and other followers as well. As well. He didn't live alone. Even Jesus, though he had solitary moments, he did not live isolated from other human beings. Because Jesus understood that life is better together. See, when believers begin to drop out of community and begin to pursue their own private interest, there was a pastor in the New Testament that he issued them a line. He wrote them a line. And he said, not avoiding worshiping together as some are doing, but spur one another on with love, especially as you see the day of the Lord appearing. He was worried that they that began in the body of Christ have stopped living as part of that body. When all you do is use the church to hang out, you can be assured that you're going to drop out. Hello? 
God didn't give us finances and strength and wisdom and vision and dreams of the existence of the Almsdale Church of the Nazarene to be a holding place for hanging out people, but to become the body of Christ, to become a people of great collaboration. Christians are privileged to live in the visible fellowship with other Christians. Aren't you happy that we can do what we're doing together? How good this is that we can come together? You know, there's places in the world where they're not, they don't have this privilege. They don't have this privilege. Jesus didn't have this privilege. Jesus had to live amongst his enemies. And his enemies were not just the Roman Empire. They were his own people as well. They handed him over to be crucified. See, Jesus didn't have to live among the roses and the lilies and all people that are devout. He lived right smack in the world of hostility, and he overcame the hostility of the world by participating in its life, where he did his ministry. Sadly, a lot of Christians don't want to enter the outside world, but how are they going to be spared if we don't go? How were we ever spared if Jesus never came into the world and spoke among sinners and gluttons and drunkens and prostitutes? Who would save them if they all begin to live like a lot of us in our own islands, in our own dreams of community, instead of really hearing the word of the Lord to go and tell? See, in our day, there's Christians that are imprisoned, that are sick, that are isolated, not because of their own choice, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ. There are missionaries in the world that are, that, are, that are alone and lonely, not because of their own choice, but because of the situation they find themselves in, in the country they find. And they long to have what we have, <laughs> a place to gather, and not just to hang out, but to truly be the community of God, a visible community where there the Lord commands the blessing. He ordains eternal life. Wow. Our celebration is heightened by the fact that God comes down like dew and oil. A picture of grace falling from Mount Hermon, the highest point, to Mount Zion, the presence of God upon the people that are gathered there, not just Aaron's beard, but all those that are gathered there. And the moral of the illustration is that we are better together through God's grace. It's only by grace that we have been saved, right? It's not of our own doing. I love what Scott McKnight says about grace. Grace is more than being lucky to be on God's side. Hello? Grace is God's goodness showered on people who have failed. It's okay to say I failed. I tried some things. They didn't work out. But thank goodness for God's grace that he picks me up and I can try it again. God's grace is God's love on those who think they are unlovable. So if anyone feels unlovable in this room, God loves you. I'm reading a book. Does God really love you? And the answer is yes. 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 Grace is God believing in us when we have given up. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Ever been there? I'm giving up. I'm not coming anymore. I had enough of this place. And God speaks to you and says, I haven't given up on you. And he gives you the power to march on. 
Grace is someone, is someone at the end of their rope finding new strength. Is that you this morning? But there's more to grace. Grace is both a place and a power. Grace is God unleashing his transforming power. Grace realigns and reroutes a life and a community. Grace is when you turn your worst enemy into your best friend. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody that you got in fisticuffs with, and then he was your best friend for all your life. Why did it take a fight to make us love each other? Come on, am I only talking about me? I know some of you have gone through this. If we're honest, God knows. Grace realigns and reroutes a life. Grace takes people as they are and makes them what they can be. Right? Grace enables, grace empowers, grace forgives, grace frees, grace transcends, grace transforms, and grace is falling right now. Oil, dew from heaven upon us today. That's the essence of this psalm. It's time to ask God for the grace that would dismantle the walls of individualism in my way or the highway, that we can live that life that we are better <laughs> together. I've got to put my wife in the spots because she probably knows how to do the hand motion. This is the church. Can you come up here and help me with this or stand down there? You know that the one with the doors? Okay. okay. You can do it as I talk, okay? And they all know it, but uh, always a visual lesson will help them remember. <laughs> During the, a, a vacation Bible school, a class was interrupted with a new student. I'll close with this. The new student was brought in, but the new student was a boy who had one arm missing. And the teacher was very nervous that one of the other children might comment on his handicap and embarrass him like a lot of children don't mean to say what they say, but it comes out anyway, right? So as the class time came to a close, she asked the class to join her, and this was their usual closing ceremony. Let's make our churches. <laughs> Here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open the doors and... Yeah. But the awful truth of what she was saying struck her. Struck her mind. The very thing that she feared the children were going to do, guess what? She done. This guy only had one hand and one arm, right? And there she was speechless. But then she took notice. There was another little girl that was beside the boy. And she reached over with her left hand and placed it in the right hand and said, here, let's make the church together. Let's make the church together. Folks, we are better together. As the worship team comes, we're going to sing this song. We haven't sung it for a while, but make us one. <laughs>